Coleman National Monument in Chicago, Illinois, with your host, Dr. Lynn Hughes. We welcome you to Live from the Pullman National Monument, our global cast magazine format talk radio show, where we discuss all things cultural economic development, i.e. tourism, and we hold informative conversations on the arts, music, business, and people. I'm your host, Dr. Lynn Hughes, founder of the National A. Philip Randolph Pullman Porter Museum, a National Park Service site in Chicago, Illinois. Good day to you, my listening audience, and we thank you for joining us. Stay with us. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Live from the Pullman National Monument. Today's show is partially underwritten by United Auto Workers, Local 551, and Choose Chicago, Chicago's premier tourism marketing agency. In the tradition that we have established here on this show, we always start out talking a little bit about the Pullman National Monument. And I try to give you information on the Pullman National Monument. As I've indicated before, the Pullman National Monument is a little bit different from what is considered the norm of national monuments. Pullman National Monument is a thematic district. The themes for the thematic district are labor, planning and design, company town structure, rail travel, and black labor history. So those are the themes. Now, in those themes, there are subdivisions or subheadings, if you will, but that is uh, the the gist of what the Pullman National Monument is all about. Now, in the Pullman National Monument, there are different sites that are there. Uh, each of those, each of us, I should say, we all have our individual niches, but um, many of those are focused on those particular themes. In the Pullman National Monument, there's an entity called the Historic Pullman Foundation. Their specialty or their emphasis is on 19th century architectural history. And that encompasses a, a lot of things, but that is the gist of what they do. And they have all manner of interesting things. They have, they offer walking tours and they focus laser-like focus on architectural history and the planning and design of what is some people say is the America's first, first planned company town. And then there is the Pullman Clock Tower, as it's lovingly called, but it was the Pullman Administration Building. And that is the site where the trains were manufactured. That is the site where the Pullman offices were, and so tours are offered there by appointment only, where you currently, um, that you can go there and take a look around the factory and sort of get the feel of what that was like at that time. That is where the rail travel was 
revolutionized, shall we say. Then there is the Hotel Florence, which was the hotel that was named after George Pullman's daughter, that is very in close proximity to the Pullman Clock Tower. That too is available by appointment only. Then there is the National A. Philip Randolph Pullman Porter Museum. The focus there is black labor history. It is a small, what we call niche museum, and is the only one of its kind worldwide, and it focuses 100% only on the black labor history contributions with a specific focus on the African-American Railroad employee, which is the connection to the uh, Pullman Company. We have one restaurant uh, in the monument. It's called the Pullman Cafe. And so that is kind of in a snapshot what is there. What's coming is the Pullman, uh, the National Park Service uh, is going to have their office and build-out visitor center that will be located in in the Pullman Clock Tower. I hope that short explanation provides you, the listening audience, with information uh, about the Pullman National Monument, and hopefully uh, it does. You can always visit the Pullman Porter Museum's website at pullmanportermuseum.com there, and we have all of the information on every site in the monument on our website, and that information is available to you there. So we, I hope that that's enough for you, and we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back. Today's show is partially underwritten by United Auto Workers, Local 551, and Hughes-Peterson Publishing, Chicago, Illinois. Visit the PullmanPorterMuseum.com where you can purchase an annual membership at the level of your choice. And, of course, visit our website here to find out more about the show live from the Pullman National Monument at bbsradio.com forward slash live from PNM to contact us. And we are back. Welcome back to Live from the Pullman National Monument. We have on our live line today a very special guest, Solomon and Gloria Herbert. They are publishers of the Black Meetings and Tourism magazine. They, I am told, are the gurus for statistical data on the African-American tourism market, and we have just been very anxious to get them on Uh, Because, of course, everyone knows this show is about tourism, global tourism, and and national tourism. And so we wanted to have uh, the opportunity to zero in on a particular market, and that is the African-American tourist uh, in this country and and abroad. And in order to be accurate, we wanted to have some folks on who really knew uh, or savvy on, on the subject matter. And who better could we bring on but Solomon and Gloria Herbert? Welcome to the show. Our, our pleasure to be Thank here. Thank you. We're happy to be here. 
So what I'd like for you to do is to just, I'm going to just, uh, after the introduction, just move out of the way and allow you to elaborate and expound upon the subject matter that you are experts in. And I'm going to be a member of the audience. I may occasionally ask a question or two, but I would like for you to introduce yourselves, uh, talk a bit about the publication and the new project you have about the new green book, all of those wonderful things. So um, I would just like for you just to go on and uh, talk about both of those things. Okay. Well, uh, as far as the, the publication goes, the magazine Black Ladies and Tourism, we started the publication in 1993. That was when we first uh, formed the, the publishing company for that publication. We actually had another magazine for a few years prior to that, but uh, 93 was when we launched the Black uh, Black Ladies in Tourism. And our our goal is not only to uh, cover tourism and hospitality and and meetings industry in terms of places to go and and venues to use, but our focus is really on uh, economic empowerment of African Americans and and wealth uh, building. So that while we talk about, uh, you know, Los Angeles or St. Louis or U.S. Virgin Islands or whatever the destination may be and talk about all of the, the culture and the beauty and, and the, you know, the convenience of it and the magnificent hotels and all those kind of things, we want to make sure that, that African-American entrepreneurs, businesses benefit from the tourism that goes into these destinations. And sad, sadly, at this point in time, our research has shown us that less than 1% of the 60, nearly $60 billion that are spent every year by African Americans in travel and tourism and meetings goes into African American businesses. So we, we're working hard to change that dynamic to make sure that the more people are aware of the opportunities in travel and tourism and that they can tap into that and become, you know, benefit, uh, benefactors of some of that kind of business that goes into countries and, and states all over the nation and around the world. I'm, I'm happy. Go ahead, please, Dr. Hughes. I, I, I wanted to say I'm happy to hear you give that explanation because one of the things that we talk about on this show every week is, and we want to open the doors of tourism, open the eyes of African Americans in particular, to the opportunities that exist in the broader under the broader umbrella of tourism and we have coined the phrase cultural economic development because it's not just about a particular destination say for the sake of this discussion a Disney World it's so much deeper than that there are multiple opportunities business opportunities that can be developed and entered into that are available under the broader umbrella of tourism that we as a community, African-Americans in particular, are just not aware of. And and it takes people like you to come on and talk about that. Yes, uh, you know, just around the uh, the meetings industry, for instance, uh, there there are so many opportunities from transportation, ground transportation, uh, uh, florists, you know, when when you go to a a luncheon or to a, a banquet, there's usually some sort of a arrangement on the table. Somebody has to do that, and, and very seldom is it an African American entrepreneur or florist is doing getting that opportunity. And mainly it's because not that they're not qualified to do it; they just don't know about those opportunities, and nobody's really 
uh, you know, impress upon them the importance of that. So we, that's our mission. That's one of the things we're doing. And then, and many other, uh, op- opportunities like that from the linen or, uh, you know, the table, you know, like in the whole hotel industry. We are, in fact, I am on the board of the National Association of African American Hotel Owners, Operators, and Developers. And, uh, there are so many opportunities. We have a conference every year in, in Miami. You know, the entrepreneurs who have any, anything, whether it's artwork that they're trying to sell or, or, you know, silverware or, or plasticware or, or linen should be there and should, should hook up with that organization and learn how, what, what the process is to become, uh, vendors for the various hotel chains and, and individual hotels around the country. So there are many, many opportunities. But like anything else, if you don't know about them, you can't take advantage of them. Absolutely. So many people, Dr. Hughes, don't realize uh, the positioning of travel as an industry in this country and worldwide. In the United States, some references say that travel and tourism is the second largest revenue-generating and employment opportunity industry after uh, technology. Others say that it's third after technology and healthcare, but it's certainly uh, in the position for us to understand there are vast opportunities there. And the other part of it, as my husband mentioned, of course, we are about the business of travel, but in addition to that, we want to include the training that's important, uh, creating opportunities for young people to, to see the importance of preparing for these uh, wonderful careers. And uh, we too many times think that uh, service and servitude are the same thing our young people do. So when we talk about working in the hospitality and travel industry, many people envision a housekeeper, which is a wonderful uh, position to have at a property, by the way, but it could be a starting point. Or working uh, in the front desk could be a starting point. And we have many African Americans who are general managers of major hotels across the country. So we also want to keep that in mind that the educational component is important. Important because in addition to the entrepreneurial and business opportunities in the travel and tourism and hospitality industry, there are many job opportunities too. Uh, there are, I, I don't really have a handle on how many jobs there are, you know, in terms of, but I can tell you this much. There are about 500, uh, approximately 500 convention and visitor bureaus around the country. When we started our publication, there were only about 15 people working, 15 African Americans working in all of those 500 bureaus. Today, the number has increased quite a bit, but it's not, not nearly where it needs to be. Of, of those 500 convention and visitor bureaus, 11 of them are run by African Americans. That means that um, 489 of them are run by people who don't look like us. So there's a lot of work, a lot of uh, you know, progress we still need to make. But, you know, that's a, that's a step in the right direction. Also, when we started our publication, there was only one black-owned hotel in the United States. Now there are over 500. And much of that is due to the work of NAMPUT, the organization I told you about, those black hotel owners, which uh, was founded about, uh, I think it was about 18 or 19 years ago. 
So there's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of opportunities, and it's just this younger generation that's coming up now, the doors are wide open for them. So they just have to know about the opportunities and take advantage of them. And I'm, I think, you know, 10 years down the road or 10, 20 years down the road, we're going to see an entirely different picture. Dr. Hughes, you referenced uh, our, our uh, upcoming uh, baby here. This is the new Green Book. So many of your listeners may be familiar with the historic Green Book. It, it wasn't that long ago. The first one was published in 1939, but they didn't cease publication until the mid-60s after uh, the act was passed, which opened the uh, hospitality industry and anyone could stay at any property. So, so those civil rights legislation that uh, were so much a part of the 60s uh, changed the picture of travel for African Americans. However, prior to those uh, legislative actions, African Americans traveling, particularly by car, but in, by any mode of transportation, were very restricted in where they could stay, what they could do, what facilities they would be able to use. So during those Jim Crow era, that those years, uh, Mr. Victor Green, who was a postal worker in New York City, devised a very uh, interesting plan to help guide African Americans, particularly those who were traveling in cars. So it was a motorist guide. He called it um, the um, African-American motorist guide, I believe, or the Negro motorist guide, as we were known during those days as Negroes. And this was to allow families or individuals who were traveling, and entertainers, by the way, were um, very much a part of this. There were many African-American entertainers who would travel from city to city to perform, but they would not be allowed uh, to stay in hotels. Uh, to eat in certain restaurants, or even to use the restroom to get gasoline at uh, many of the service stations across the country. So Victor Green came up with a wonderful plan to document those places in various destinations that were friendly and that were safe. And so it became known as the Green Book, of course, named after Mr. Green. And it was such a popular tool that African Americans used as they traveled because, again, they couldn't just go to um, any hotels in Marriott or or uh, Best Western or wherever. It was staying at perhaps Miss Susie's um, rooming house or somebody, a family that had a room. I always say that this is the prerequisite or, or the precursor to Airbnb. Uh, but it was also an interesting time when African Americans were guided to spend their money with other African Americans. So because they could not go to any restaurant, you knew that you were going to get food at those places listed in the Green Book. You went to Uncle Charlie's Barbecue Place. You went to so-and-so's soul food restaurant. But it kept those dollars in the black community. And this is what we are encouraging African Americans to do, as Solomon said, to look at this as a, a, a power, a economic empowerment tool an online directory, a digital directory, and a mobile app that will guide you to any place you want to go. So we certainly think African Americans, and we know based on our uh, years of experience in this industry, we go every place anybody else goes, in the country and out of the country. We now have the freedom of travel. But what we are encouraging all African Americans to do is to look beyond the freedom of travel and look at the choices that travel can provide. So when you go into a city, 
yes, you're going to go to everything that that city has to offer. But perhaps one day out of that, uh, your experience, you might choose to go to an African-American-owned restaurant, stay at an African-American-owned hotel, uh, maybe even have some of your travel planned by an African-American travel agent. Um, So it's just an opportunity, again, to create that kind of empowerment that will allow our communities to grow and to flourish because those dollars are being spent. And as Solomon said, it's almost $60 billion, that's billion with a B, every year that African Americans put into circulation and it's going into someone's pocket, pockets. We think it should be in pockets of African Americans and others who look like us. So the new green book will provide that kind of information. Um, it will be available online. It will be available as a mobile app, and we are going to be publicizing it in various ways. We certainly will be sending uh, information to you to share with your readers and to or your your listeners, rather, to encourage them to. It's a complimentary listing, so there's no charge. But we want people to to utilize it and um, take advantage of that service to make a difference for all of us in this industry and for all of us uh, in this country. So that'll be coming out very soon. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I'm I, As I listen to this conversation from the both of you, it re, I'm reminded about, I, I guess I want to say, my awakening to travel and tourism or, or the, the travel and tourism industry. In 1995, there was in a convening in Washington, D.C., called the White House Conference on Travel and Tourism. U.S. Commerce Secretary, then U.S. Commerce Secretary Ron Brown, was one of the conveners. And I just remember going to that, I, I finagled my way to go as a delegate for the state of Illinois. And there were people from all over the country and and abroad who were there to talk about travel and tourism. Well, quite honestly and quite frankly, I really didn't know about it. I just knew that as the founder of the first Black Labor History Museum in the nation, I wanted to be there because I, in my instinct, said that there was something there that I needed to know about. And I will never forget the conversation Ron Brown, who sought me out and said to me that I'm so glad that you came. I'm impressed that you came because seeing your face here means that you get it. There were 3,500 people, delegates there representing the travel and tourism industry from all manner every facet of travel and tourism. And of the uh, 3,500, there were 17 people of color. There was a combination of African-American, Hispanic, and Native American. There were 17 of us collectively. And what he I never will forget what he said to me was, he said, I'm, he said that, I'm so happy to see you here because there's so many of our people who just don't even have a clue about travel and tourism, the travel and tourism industry. My parents, he said, had a hotel. And all we know about tourism was the carbon monoxide that the buses left when they passed my parents' hotel. 
that was my awakening. And so one of the things that I learned when I left there it was that his reference to it was cultural economic development. That's where the coin, that's where the phrase really came from. It did not come from my doctoral thesis. It came from him. I just remember that. And so my point is that I make it a point to have a discussion or designate some portion of this show every week to talk about opportunities that are presented under the broader umbrella of tourism for not, for entrepreneurs and for, for those many of those people who are locked out because of, um, shall we say, brushes with the law who have turned their lives around, but they cannot get into places of employment. As I see it, uh, traveling, the travel and tourism industry, or the tourism industry in particular, presents opportunities for people who can be entrepreneurs because you don't have to have a degree. You don't have to really have a whole lot of startup capital in the instances where there are uh, travel uh, tourism destinations that are developing around this country in the United States. There are all kinds of opportunities that are available that people can embark upon entrepreneurial efforts uh, to, to, to make themselves a very comfortable living and for our young people to be uh, awakened to the opportunities. Most of our young people think in terms of travel and tourism or the hospitality. They think in terms of, well, I don't want to wait on somebody. Well, somebody has to wait on those somebodies, and they're taking home very healthy paychecks. Thank you very much. <laughs> so I'm just so excited about the work that you folks are doing and to know that there are folks out there like you who are doing this work and helping to educate people and, and, and to open the eyes of people to recognize that there are many opportunities that are out there. And you need not think that you're prevented from, from going in that door because it's not always about Disney World. And, and in our case, uh, Chicago, we have Navy Pier and the Bean, but it's not always about that. It's what's underneath, as Solomon said, about those opportunities, business opportunities that exist and not just looking at it as a place to visit. But people internationally, by the way, are very interested in African-American heritage and Native American heritage. So they come here from around the world to go to a slave plantation as well as to Native American uh, uh, tribal sites. Uh, we really don't even begin to realize uh, how interesting uh, African-American are as a people uh, to others in places who are not familiar uh, with our culture. So we have a lot to offer, and we just know that it's time for us us to step up to the plate and, yes, share our heritage, our history, what we bring to the table, but also, as our friend says, to get paid for it. So this is why we hope we can make a difference as a publication that focuses on the business of travel. Well, I think you are making a difference, and I think you will continue to make a difference. And I applaud uh, the work that you folks are doing. I am honored to have you on the show as our guest to elaborate and to educate uh, our listening audience about this particular in segment of his of um, our, our economy, frankly. And I always like to say that 
while we are focusing on attracting or, or zeroing in on African-American tourists, that is not to say that we're excluding anyone. It's just so it just happens that we are focusing on a market, really an untapped market. There are people who international tourists, international travelers who come to Chicago all the time, and they are almost always, without exception, people from London, people from Spain, people from the Netherlands, people from Asia, and they are coming to Chicago and visiting. They want to visit, seek out, seeking out African-American tourist destinations because they want to know more about the experience. And so it's not that we're excluding. We're simply marketing what we have to offer. So uh, you were talking earlier about their opportunities entrepreneurs that you don't have to have a lot of uh, capital to get started or, or even a degree. Well, one of the areas that virtually costs nothing, although it, it takes time, you, you must educate yourself, is to be a step-on guide. When when they have these tours, somebody's got to be on that bus, be on that van, and explain the neighborhood and talk about the various attractions within the neighborhood and points of interest in the, in the historical uh, places. And so, if if you have if you're good with people and, and like to uh, you know have a, your have some people uh, power uh, powers you know you like to talk to people and you you're interested in history and culture well you educate yourself about your own community in your own city and that's an opportunity you get in touch with the convention and visitors bureau you get in touch with travel agents who are bringing people into town and let them know you're available to be a step on guide for and you and you get paid for that. And you can do do something you enjoy doing and spread spread the word about the, your culture and your 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 community's culture, and at the same time become part of a major industry, a growing industry, which, as I said, is and that sixty billion dollars is a is a very conservative estimate. It's probably more than that. That is so true. That is so true. That's an excellent point you brought on about the step on guys, because that's something now would, I mean, we utilize them and we know about them, but, but it's one of those things where had you not said anything, I would never have even, I don't know that I would have thought to mention that. And I will begin to incorporate that into my conversations when I'm talking about. Uh, the various kinds of opportunities that exist in the travel and tourism industry. That's an excellent opportun- um, suggestion. Thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. I would like for you all to to just give a little bit more plug about your magazine, the website, uh, and, and, and where people can go and find out more about the uh, magazine and about the new green book and, and, and the services that you offer and the contact information for you. Would you be kind enough to do that? Sure. If you go to our website, which is www.blackmeetingsandtourism, that's B-L-A-C-K-M-E-E-T-I-N-G-S-A-N-D-T-O-U-R-I-S-M-A-N.com. That's our website. On the website, we have uh, our digital magazine. We have what we call web web uh, exclusives. They're not in the magazine. They're not any place else. They're just on our website. 
and then we also send out a digital uh, newsletter every month or so. And so if, if anybody is interested in getting on, on our mailing list, all they need to do is go on our website, and there's a place in there to register to get onto our mailing list, and we'll start sending them the, new, the newsletter as well. Well, and you can, you'll be able to find information, uh, uh, Dr. Hughes, about the New Green Book also. Uh, they're launching a site, uh, but it's going to be the New Green Book for Travel.com. And, and, and although it's not up yet, um, you'll be able to get access to that very soon. But going through the Black Meetings and Tourism.com website, it will be directing you uh, to get information about the New Green Book as well. And we thank you so much for this opportunity to share this information with your listening audience. Well, thank you both very much, everybody. Join me in thanking Gloria and Solomon Herbert, publishers of the Black Meeting and Tourism magazine, and coming online will be the new Green Book. We thank them. Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Around the Museum Table. I'm your host, Dr. Lynn Hughes, and we are excited about our guest today. Our guest today is Dr. Maria Madison. She is founder of Robin's House, a Concord, Massachusetts historic site that celebrates and interprets African and American history. Dr. Madison, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be on the show. So tell us a little bit about yourself and about Robin's House. and Tell us some of the wonderful work that has been occurring there, all because of you and the wonderful people that you've managed to rally together, which is a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It does feel so- like a miracle. Absolutely. Uh, I um, must have moved to Concord, Massachusetts about 18 years ago. We moved here with uh, our two-year-old son and, um, and then subsequently had another daughter. And uh, as soon as you move anywhere, you move with a sense of awe to the new place and curiosity. And with that awe and curiosity, we were also interested in learning what our kids would learn about black history in a community that... Uh, has a lot going on in a lot of ways in terms of history and writers and just activism. But we also wanted to know what was going on in the community related to African-American history, what the kids would be learning in school related to black history. And uh, because of that curiosity, some people in the school gave us a book called Concord is Black History. It was published by the Concord Public Schools in 1976. They used it in the school system for 10 years till 1986, and then they stopped using the book. Uh, so you can imagine when we moved to town, we were really excited to try and rediscover the places that that book had highlighted. 
It highlighted places like the middle school was named after a fellow named Frank Sanborn. He was one of the Secret Six who helped uh, fund John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. Uh, the elementary school was named after Louise May Alcott. Her family was an active uh, group of abolitionists. And there's so many other places in town named after early African residents, and we wanted to know who they were. So we actually started uh, taking kids, our own kids, as well as children who were bused from Boston urban schools to Concord to go to the suburban schools for the hope of a better education. So we started taking those kids and our kids around to these spots that commemorated some of these early African residents in particular and what they had done to help create this historic town. In the process of giving tours, which we gave probably for a good three to five years, we discovered and the town discovered a house that was coming up for demolition in 1990. Oh, I've lost track. 19, I've lost track, let's say like 2009, actually. (laughs) The house was coming up for demolition because the last inhabitant had died. And there was a sign on the house that said, Peter Hutchinson, circa 1780. And the town knew and we knew that that was one of the um, well-known 19th century black residents uh, who one of the uh, more well-known Concord residents had written about. And that individual, of course, was Henry David Thoreau. Lots of people come to Concord to hear more about who Henry David Thoreau was as an environmentalist, as a transcendentalist, as a writer. Uh, But we had learned that he also wrote down stories of what he heard and saw about the early African residents, including people who had lived in this house that was coming up for demolition. So we quickly swept into action. We stopped being just community activists and organizers and had to become a nonprofit. We, many of us, also had day jobs, so we had to somehow convert our uh, day jobs which were completely unrelated to the stories of history and African-American history in particular. And we had to incorporate ourselves and and try to acquire, restore, preserve, and adapt this house that everyone believed was built in the 1780s by or for this African uh, family. Long story short, uh, the town helped us to restore and uh, restore, preserve, and adapt the house. They also helped us to move it closer to its original location where it was uh, located across the street from what is called the North Bridge, which happens to be where the first successful battle was fought during the Revolutionary War. So this historic house now sits in a corner of the world and in Concord in particular, where millions of people come to visit because they want to understand how America was founded or how America gained its independence from King George, so that we benefit from that. We have uh, been open since about 2011 or 12, and we've probably had 30 to 40,000 conversations with global visitors about that parallel narrative uh, related to the Revolutionary War. People come to learn about how America was founded and gained independence from King George in England, but we end up describing to them that there was another pathway that had to be forged by those earliest of African 
uh, migrants, if you will. We end up needing to describe to our thousands of visitors that there was slavery in the North, that the slavery in the North was equally egregious as slavery in the South. It may not have been as um, populated. Uh, it may not have been based on the same kind of agrarian um, needs, but the disenfranchisement, uh, the treatment of the enslaved in the North was as problematic as it was in the South. We then go on to describe for our visitors that, yes, uh, Massachusetts was the first state to legalize slavery. Uh, it also became one of the first states to abolish slavery. But we then learned quickly that we had to explain to our thousands of annual visitors, I think we get 7,700 visitors each year, that even though slavery was abolished, uh, Individuals had no means to provide for themselves or their families, and we had to describe then uh, that era that uh, is referred to as the Reconstruction Era. So we tell our visitors um, the origins of African inhabitancy in this country as represented not just through Concord, but through the people who lived in this house. So our, our narrative for this house is that it commemorates the legacy of a previously enslaved Revolutionary War veteran, the uh, individual that we know of as associated with the farmhouses on that property. His name was Caesar Robbins, and he was enslaved in the North. He was also a Revolutionary War veteran who had fought, fought in at least two or three battles. Uh, and the house was inhabited by, one could say, three to four generations of his descendants. And it's a 544-square-foot house, which is very typical of farmers for that period, white or black. So one could say that even though it's small, it is similar to how any farmer of that era would have lived. So one could say that this earliest of African families was doing well by comparison of other Africans living in Concord or in the north at that time. Some of those earliest of African inhabitants were pushed to even less arable land, uh, dying, for example, from malnutrition, et cetera. But this family, this family is interesting because Caesar's son, Peter, was able to find his pathway to independence and buy the house uh, just through odd-end jobs and being a day laborer, if you will. Um, his sister, Susan Garrison, she actually helped to found the Concord Female Anti-Slavery Society, even though her husband had been a fugitive slave from New Jersey. So he had fled from New Jersey to Concord and ended up staying in Concord. A lot of what we've done in this house is to uh, begin to interpret the lives of these individuals, and one individual in particular is Ellen Garrison. Ellen was Caesar Robbins' granddaughter, she was Susan and Jack's daughter. She was born and raised in this house. She was born in 1823 and lived in Concord till 1840. We've interpreted her life in an exhibit in the house because her life really is a parallel and a wonderful vehicle for describing America's long civil rights movement. I say that because she's born in Concord, which is this you know town that sees itself as really representing um, 
the stronghold of abolitionist ideas as well as transcendentalist ideas. She's born and conquered at a time where many of the whites of the town are discussing um, slavery. They're discussing anti-slavery and abolitionism. They're also discussing how far do we want these blacks to go? Do we want them to be equal to us? Or do we just want to end the genocide that is slavery? So she's growing up in that kind of Concord. And with that grounding, she becomes a top scholar in Concord. She wins the highest prize for scholarship while she's a student in Concord. And with that uh, fervor, you could say, she moved to Boston and became a part of the more active black community in Beacon Hill, um, very active Boston Vigilance Committee. She starts hosting events on behalf of other nationally renowned abolitionists like William Lloyd Garrison. And to fast forward to the 1860s, when she's in her 40s, she um, actually signs up to be a teacher within the Freedmen's Bureau, which is, of course, created during the Reconstruction era to help teach the newly freed, enslaved uh, people of the South in particular to learn how to read and write. It's through this that we now get to start interpreting the lives of these earliest Africans through the voice of Ellen Garrison, this young African-American um, girl who's now a woman teaching during the Reconstruction era. She starts writing a 100 letters. It's through her letters that we have been able to get a glimpse into what it's like to have been born in Concord, to travel south to Portobello, Maryland, and start experiencing racism in a way that she may not have experienced necessarily in Concord, but she writes eloquently about in her experience in Maryland. During that period, she actually, by May of 1866, decides uh, or actually is forced to have to replace some clothing because her house was burned down. Many Southerners didn't like those Northern teachers coming down to teach their newly freed enslaved brethren. Uh, and so they burned her house, and she needed to replace her clothing. So she went to the train station in May of 1866 in order to go and travel to buy items that she needed to replace. But being this well-educated, strong woman, young woman, she writes a letter about how she decided to sit in the ladies' waiting room at the Baltimore Railroad Station, and she's sitting just with all the other people who were there. It just so happens she was the only black woman sitting there. And so on two occasions, two people came up to her and told her she needed to leave. On the second occasion, it was actually the train station master who was impersonating a policeman, and he forcibly ejected her, and she writes in one of her letters that she was emotionally and physically abused or harassed by his gesture. And she writes beautifully to her supervisor that now that our friends in Congress one month ago had passed a law to help us respect our rights, she felt it was within her rights and duty to test those rights. Of course, what she was referring to was that the country had just passed, in April of 1866, the nation's first Civil Rights Act. So she was testing it one month later with what I like to refer to as the nation's first documented sit-in. So she represents the nation's first sit-in as well as the first legal test 
for the first Civil Rights Act, which was in 1866, which, of course, as you know, is many decades before Claudette Colvin or Rosa Parks. So what we see is that, or what we found actually through our own efforts uh, last summer, was that her court case was thrown out. We don't have evidence yet on why it was thrown out. Next to the, um, the docket, there are initials or little letters next to her name that said N-E, and the Maryland, uh, a Maryland, Maryland legal assistant said the N-E might mean known est, for she wasn't present when the case was called. However, in one of her letters, it does say that she was waiting for the case to be called, but that the case was never called. One of her letters also says that the uh, lawyers for the train station master tried to settle with her out of court, but just like Thoreau, she said, no, I want to see if rights of respectable, respectable people can be respected. So just like Thoreau, she didn't want an easy uh, resolution. It reminds me of Thoreau because, of course, he wrote Civil Disobedience, not paying his poll tax in protest of slavery. But when his aunt came to release him, he didn't want to leave the jail. He wanted to make his point. And Ellen Garrison in the same way. She didn't want to settle her court case. She wanted to make her point. Um, but unfortunately, the court case was thrown out, which is an example equally of the Reconstruction era being defunded. And of course, many scholars have tried to find the best way to describe why it was defunded. Some like to say that the Reconstruction era and the Freedmen's Bureau was defunded because it, of course, was too successful. It was a test of helping African Americans gain a stronghold in government. It was the first time you would see congresspersons of color in Congress. It was the first time you would see an effort to distribute land equally to people who previously previously hadn't been allowed to own property. Instead, they were property treating, treated as animals or inhumanely. And I think as a backlash to that redistribution, Many white Southerners, for example, felt that land was being taken from them, that their rights to uh, wages and uh, jobs were taken from them. So during that same period, of course, you see the rise of the KKK and Jim Crow laws and black codes, et cetera. So with the deconstruction and defunding of the Reconstruction era, we follow Ellen Garrison through to another movement called the Exodusters. She traveled to Kansas for the promise of owning arable land, met a man, married him, owned probably around 160 acres or so. And um, what we see, of course, is the exoduster movement is so-called because the land is not arable. It's almost like dust. And uh, we, interestingly enough, see her moving again, this time with her sister and uh, her husband, Hervey Clark, to what we just recently discovered last month, Pasadena, California, to a cemetery where we find her buried uh, in, I think it's called Mount View Crest or Mount Crest View Cemetery in, uh, in outside of Pasadena. And she is buried in a cemetery that was created by John Brown's family. And I spoke with someone at that cemetery whose name was Keith Brown, and Keith Brown said that that cemetery was created for... East Coast friends and family of John Brown. 
So oh we have now found this exceptional connection from the northeast to the southwest of this migration that I think represents, you know, that search for the warmth of other suns, um, of our people constantly moving, looking for tranquility, peace, and just a right to create transgenerational health and wealth. Uh, that's that's where our story is at present. That's my what very long fascinating. <laughs> No, no, that's an absolutely fascinating uh, history and with so much detail. And then that kind of detail only comes when the researcher uh, is dedicated to <laughs> excavating truth uh, right. at the, the at the end of the the. The line where where does where's the genesis of that? That takes a, a, an enormous amount of determination, and and I just applaud you uh, and the work that you have done and continue to do because this is this is a very it's not unusual, but it's the kind of thing that happens on an ongoing basis where you have this bit of history that most of us do not know mm-hmm. uh, because they don't teach it mm-hmm. uh, in the schools and our children don't know it. And, and mm-hmm. more often than not, the adults, we uh, mm-hmm. don't know the, the, the historical account, but it is significant. And it's one of those scenarios where the explanation is applicable here if you if you don't know who you are and where right. you came from and that your history matters, you think very little of yourself, which is, in my opinion, uh, and, and and many may not agree, but but I truly believe that many of the problems that we have in the African American community with our youth uh, mm. emanate from. The feeling of no value, and and That's right. and, and you, if you don't value yourself, That's right. then it guides your actions and your behavior. And I don't know why people don't get that, but but that is so so true. And so whenever I hear of work like what you're doing, uh, it's Thank a you. very emotional experience for me because I'm very passionate about what I do. Mm-hmm which is why I made the lateral move to create this show. I, too, like you, founded uh, a, a, a black labor history museum. And mm. I, I, like you, did not move to Chicago with the intent of starting a museum. It was a byproduct, much like what you did. I moved to Chicago looking for a place to reinvent myself. I didn't, I wanted to go somewhere where I didn't know anyone. I ended up in Chicago and literally stumbled upon the history, the history of A. Philip Randolph and the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, and as they say, the rest is history. And that was 23 years ago. And so, the work that I have done through the museum has been the motivating factor for numerous books and documentaries and docudramas. And while I did not get credit or paid for that, that is not the, that that is not what's important. What is important is the history. Has That's been right. excavated in a way that 
now people are paying attention. And I think the best thing that could have happened for me was oh. that show, Showtime's interest in creating a docudrama that reached the younger demographic, which is what this is all about. Oh. That's exactly right. We, so, um, so, we so it's wonderful. Tried. Thank you. We, we definitely try to do that. And in fact, what, what we try to tie in is this concept of here's a family that fought hard to overcome adversity and that we don't want to just explain to people that there was slavery, but we want to explain that these are people who, as my father described in a letter to my brother, uh, we are the survivors of that ingenuity, and that there's a kind of genius that had to still come out from that period and the ongoing struggle, and that that genius is what makes American culture, the examples of which, the examples least of which, are the American culture that's exported around the world. Wherever I go, I see examples of the inventions of people who created things right after being enslaved or even during slavery, the examples of which are the vanilla beans by an enslaved person, the potato chip by an African-American who may have had indigenous or German blood, the almanac by Benjamin Banneker, the light bulb, the elevator, the pen, the refrigerator, the ironing board, open heart surgery, dustpan, lawnmower. Those were all 19th century when we're still, you know, not long after slavery across the country, you know, and describing that parallel to the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment, all the civil rights acts, these inventions are what makes Americans Americans. So when I hear, for example, you know, uh, some folks who are really don't understand Amer African-American contributions to America and say things like, they need us, we don't need them. I feel sad for them because they just don't know the contributions <laughs> of African Americans to this country or to the world. It is just, it's mind boggling. And yeah. it's almost, it's almost, but that, 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 that just demonstrates that we have more work to do and the importance or it raises the, the recognition that there's more work to do and the importance of our passing on this knowledge to the younger demographic because we probably won't finish um, the work that we have started. And, and so the, it's significant because they have to know it. That's right. They have to That's know it because experiencing and learning about these important uh, uh, actions or occurrences in our history, it not it's not just a, a place to visit. Like if someone visits your place or visits the the other uh, places of significance that that interpret and celebrate African American history. But right. but they leave with an understanding and a recognition of the importance of it. But it also makes them a better citizen, I believe. That's right. That's it. That's exactly it. I, I will say that we have been exceptionally fortunate to have won a couple of grants from the Institutes of Museum and Library Services that our most recent one is helping us to create curriculum for the public schools in our area. So the curriculum is being developed for elementary, middle, and high school. And in addition, we have also been fortunate to 
have uh, participated in training, a variety of training focused on Africa, interpreting African-American history and culture. And one of those uh, trainings is available through the National Museum of African-American History and Culture with the Smithsonian. And they solicit 12 to 14 representatives of sites across the country to submit proposals and applications to participate each January in their annual workshops that they host in South Carolina. So I I would strongly recommend uh, individuals who are interested in interpreting historic sites like these to reach out to IMLS or reach out to the Smithsonian or reach out to uh, NMAAHC. Well, that's good to know. That's good to know. Uh, We at the Pullman Porter Museum, I'll just shorten it and say, We've not had very good luck with with that kind of thing. So maybe okay. something that you just shared will <laughs> will rub yeah. off on us. Um, I have the passion and the tenacity to do to create the museum, but mm-hmm. I'm not very good at. Uh, which is now why I'm no longer president. Which is you know why the demographic, the younger demographic, is important because. They, they, the millennials kind of see things through a different lens, which is mm-hmm. always helpful because pioneers, sometimes right. we get a block. <laughs> right, right, right. I get a block. I, I, I get a block regularly. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, but, but yes. But bringing the students, when we bring school groups into the house, that's where the magic happens. So the last two, uh, we had a our last two programs were with the Harlem Lacrosse uh, program, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with them, but I think it's, I'm a, not. it's I think a national nonprofit. But each year, uh, that group brings uh, Harlem Lacrosse players to various places across the country, including Concord, and they play a tournament, uh, a lacrosse tournament that combine local lacrosse players with the Harlem lacrosse players. They also mentor these kids. They, I think, mentor them through internships and potential career paths and through school, uh, but they also take them to the historic sites throughout the area. So when those programs come, that's one of the most magical moments of you know this work. It re-energizes you when you know you're making a direct contact on this history. That is fascinating. I I I want to. Um, do you have time to stay with us just a few more minutes? Oh yes, sure. We're going to take a quick break and come okay. back. Okay. Let's go to break. Visit the PullmanBorderMuseum.com where you can purchase an annual membership at the level of your choice. And, of course, visit our website here to find out more about the show live from the Pullman National Monument at bbsradio.com forward slash live from PNM to contact us. Well, we're back, and this has been an absolutely fascinating uh, interview. And Dr. Madison I hope that we can impose upon you and ask you to come back um, 
to visit with us again. This was wonderful. And I think we didn't need, we just, this was just the tip of the iceberg. I think that you have so much to share uh, that our listening audience would love to hear and could benefit from the information and the knowledge that you have about the work that you're doing, because it's an overlay. It it transcends Mm -hmm. not just where you are, but uh, Mm -hmm. the other sites as well. Let's give Mm -hmm. your website uh, and contact information before we run out of time. Absolutely. Thank you. And and I do want to say a special warm thank you to you as well for for connecting us and and, uh, having us on this show. Uh, Please visit us at www.robinshouse.org. And our contact information is uh, available there as well. Thank you once again, Dr. Hughes. You are so very welcome. And um, I can't thank you enough. And we look forward to uh, your visiting us again. So, thank you. And in Chicago. (laughs) Good, good. So, everyone, (laughs) thank you. Join me in thanking Dr. Maria Madison, the founder of. Robin's House in Concord, Massachusetts. Thank you. Everybody, thank you for sharing with us another informative show on the ever-expanding topic of tourism. Thank you to the listening audience for spending part of your Sunday with us. And a very special thank you to the Pullman Messenger Magazine, United Auto Workers, Local 551, and Choose Chicago. Thank you to our fantastic engineer, Mr. Don Newsom, smooth jazz artist Jonathan Fritzen for allowing us to use his music on our show every week, and last but not least, you, the listening audience, because without you, there would be no show. And we'll see you next time on Live from the Pullman National Monument. Live from Pullman National Monument was brought to you by Hughes Peterson Publishing in Chicago, Illinois. Hosted by Dr. Lynn Hughes.